When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. My name is Andreas Dino, and today it's Wednesday, December 7th. We are going to ask the question today whether one should be bullish or bearish energy. And we've actually gathered both an energy bull and an energy bear in the studio today. So I'm pleased to be joined by Jason DeSena-Treader, the CEO of Strategas, the energy bear today. Welcome to the, show, to the show, Jason. I'm happy to be here. I'm the energy bull, though. So. Uh, you're the energy bull, of course. I'm the I mixed bull. it up. Yep. Yep. But Jason, let's talk about energy first. Why is energy still a good bet in your view? It's still a good bet, in my opinion, because we've largely created, um, I would argue, an artificial scarcity of, uh, of oil and natural gas. And I see no give when it comes to policymakers as far as having a supply side response. When I look at production of oil, um, generally speaking, about 100 billion barrels a day, um, we still have a large portion of the population globally that has never had access to, to energy. And so that population is going to continue to grow uh, while I think even in a recession, which I think is possible uh, next year, if not likely, uh, generally speaking, demand doesn't fall all that much. But it largely has to do with the idea that um, I, I believe that uh, Western countries, unfortunately, have created an artificial scarcity of the product. But Jason, when you watch the price action over the past few days here, energy stocks at the bottom of the index for like two, three days in a row, oil in a bearish trend, what makes you optimistic right now on energy? I think part of it is that I, I travel around I, and uh, meet with a lot of institutional investors globally. Um, I think despite the fact that energy was the best performing sector in the S&P 500 last year, of 50%, um, despite the fact that it's the best performing sector in the S&P 500 this year, I think of 57, uh, it's still only about 5% of the S&P 500. And so... Um, it doesn't suggest to me that it's over-owned. I, I find that there's a lot of institutional investors that can't buy energy um, because of certain ESG mandates. And then there's another group of, of investors that um, have seen how poor, how poorly companies have managed their capital over time uh, and are fearful about, uh, about getting involved. Uh, in my opinion, though, the world has changed quite a bit and the companies are, are far more focused on uh, on being good stewards of capital. I can certainly confirm your view that a lot of pension funds, a lot of asset managers cannot buy energy also in Europe, 
where I'm from, simply due to ESG rules, policies set by the board of uh, various asset managers and pension funds. But Jason, um, I've read a lot of your notes recently and you've sort of opened the door for a recession next year, uh, giving it in between 50 and 75% probability uh, of a recession in, within the next 24 months. So how does that rhyme with a long energy view? No, it's, it's a very good question. And, and generally speaking, it, it is somewhat incongruous. Uh, our other two overweight sectors are healthcare uh, and consumer staples. So it, we're overweight, very defensive sectors. Energy, though, again, I think is a bit different now. Uh, and that's mainly because the, there continues to be a strong demand for the product. I think it's still, despite all of the efforts to, to move to renewables, there's still uh, a very strong hunger and thirst for fossil fuels that I don't think is going to go away uh, anytime soon. And in past recessions, generally speaking, demand might fall by a million, uh, maybe a million and a half barrels a day. Even during COVID, uh, you went from 100 million barrels a day, 85 million barrels a day in, um, in production and consumption. Um, and uh, that was with everything being shut down. Uh, now, it seems to me, uh, with especially with the possibility of China reopening, I think it's a little dangerous, personally, uh, to be particularly short uh, the commodity. At least, I would also say the stocks, to me, there's a difference between the stocks and the commodity. Stocks make a lot of sense, in my opinion, at anything over $60 a barrel. Hmm. And one could obviously argue that cash flows are important again. But if we look at earnings into next year across sectors, Jason, um, obviously when we look at PE multiples right now in forward terms, they seem to be sort of in the middle of the park from a historical perspective. But what do you make of the E in the PE multiple into next year? Well, again, I think, you know, a, a lot of this is, I would say a lot of the companies, at least, they have an ability to control the E to a certain extent, partly because um, they're not spending as much on CapEx as they have in the past. And as a result, I think the price of the commodity is going to stay a bit higher. I think I have a chart here. I just wanted to show people for uh, a moment. And this is just in the U.S., uh, but to me, the chart, I, I think, tells you a lot about what's happening uh, in the states. And the dash line uh, is the price of the commodity. And uh, the blue line is 12-month trailing uh, spending on capital expenditures. And, and what you can see is that there's been a very big difference uh, between the price of the commodity and the willingness of energy companies uh, to punch holes in the ground. I think one of the great ironies uh, about the energy industry, at least in the United States uh, over the last several years, is that the Trump administration loved the energy industry, um, absolutely loved it. Uh, and yet, in many ways, it fed into the worst instincts of people that run energy companies uh, and actually made them bad investments. And now you're in the Biden administration, which is no fan of the, of the fossil fuel industry. And uh, the irony, of course, is the Biden administration plus the ESG movement has made the companies much better investments, uh, mainly because they're being incentivized to return money to shareholders in the form of dividends for share purchases. 
So I, I just, I guess my view is that there's a capital discipline uh, in the energy industry in the States uh, that I have not seen really in my career about over 30 years. Because normally uh, the way it works is that the money burns a hole in the pockets of, of people that run energy companies. And when prices move higher, uh, they tend to be their own worst enemies by punching holes in the ground. And if that isn't happening, it's not hmm. Jason, if we look at earnings estimates across other sectors than energy into next year, um, I think the consensus is for a increase of roughly 2% in earnings per share next year for the S&P 500. What do you make of that consensus estimate compared to your expectations? Yeah, we actually have, uh, we actually have earnings down uh, next year. And um, so the, there's never been a recession without earnings being down, even in inflationary periods. I think sometimes people make the argument that that earnings can stay a bit higher than, than normal uh, because earnings are in nominal terms. Uh, but even during the 70s, every recession you had was accompanied by decline in earnings. So the, to use the actual numbers for the S&P 500, um, earnings this year should come in about $222, $223. We see earnings next year at $200 figure. Uh, and if we place a multiple on that of 15 or 16 times, um, that leads us to believe that there's more risk overall in the, in the equity market. So from, a, from an allocation perspective, which sectors do you like and which sectors do you dislike as a consequence of this earnings call? Yeah, so we talked about we talked about energy, and I do think energy companies have some pricing power. So we like energy, we like consumer staples because we we think here again it's a defensive sector. Stocks aren't cheap. I, I have no I have no real um, enthusiasm for buying things that are trading at twenty five times earnings that are growing at two percent. But by the same token, it seems to me that the staples are are going to have a, a better um, time of it in terms of maintaining pricing power. And other sectors, and I also like healthcare because, again, it's defensive and people don't have a lot of choices in terms of uh, not necessarily spending uh, on their healthcare. So those are, those are the sectors I like the most. As far as the U.S. sectors, um, I would be very careful on consumer discretionary. Um, I think we've been living beyond our means for a very long period of time. Uh, I think we've also um, been subsidized by very cheap rates and quantitative easing for a long period of time, and it's over. Uh, I'd also be very careful on real estate. Um, I think that's uh, that's an area where, particularly in commercial real estate, it seems to me that there's um, there's a come up that's very likely uh, in the next next several years. So we're just at the very beginning of it. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I almost perfectly agree with your views, Jason, but one thing that could wrong foot of you is a very swift pivot from the Fed. So why don't we talk about the Federal Reserve for a second? 
what do you make of the most recent rhetoric from Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve regarding the pivot? That's a, it's a good question, and I think it, 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 it certainly depends on how you're defining the pivot. Uh, and I, I, in my opinion, I really define a pivot as uh, moving from uh, tight monetary policy uh, to easy monetary policy. And I, I don't think that's going to happen for at least a year. I, I think even if there's a financial crisis, I, I would be more willing to think that uh, the size of balance sheet for asset sales uh, would uh, that would that would slow down more than they would be willing to cut rates. Um, I, I think right now the Fed is very focused on on getting inflation under control. There are some signs that it's their, their policies are working, but we still have an on a, we still have an inflation rate in the U.S. of uh, based on the CPI of seven point seven. Uh, to me, the, the Fed is not really going to think about a, a true pivot or move to easier policy until you see positive real rates on the short end uh, or if you see real weakness in the labor market. And thus far, neither of those conditions really have been met. So I think, I think it's very difficult for the Fed to move easier or more accommodated monetary policy anytime soon. Certainly, I do think that it, within the next several months, it, would not be surprising me if they stopped increasing rates just to see how their policies were working. But I'm not sure that's enough to really, certainly I don't think it's enough to buy growth stocks, let's put it that way. I think that uh, that world has changed mainly because going back to quantitative easing and subsidized levels of interest rates, I think it's very, very unlikely anytime soon. So Jason, where does this leave the outlook for inflation? I'm I'm of the view I, I, at our shop we would not quibble with the idea that inflation probably peaked. Uh, we've probably seen the high water mark for inflation in this cycle. By the same token, I think there are structural reasons why inflation may be sticky. That it's going to be difficult, at least in the U.S., for inflation to come down. Um, first point I would I would simply make is that. Um, about 60% of the U.S. federal budget uh, is indexed to inflation, uh, plus interest expenses, which is another 10 or 12% of the budget. So um, the Fed is going to be fighting government spending in many ways this year. Uh, Social Security, our pension scheme, our public pension plan, uh, the cost of living adjustment this year is 8.7%. Uh, the same is true for Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, our healthcare um, systems, and then interest on the debt is uh, exploding in size because interest rates have gone up as much as they have. So the first thing I would say is government spending is going to remain pretty robust uh, in the states. The second uh, point I would make is that at least as it stands now, there's a labor shortage uh, in the U.S. So there's many more job openings than there are people looking for work. That keeps uh, that keeps wage inflation uh, quite high. I think deglobalization is another long-term trend, which probably leads to higher inflation in the U.S. over time. And then finally, I, I do think, as we, we talked about before, I, I, I do think that um, there is going to continue to be a bid in the price of oil and the price of gas uh, without any sort of supply-side response, any attempt to increase supply uh, in the United States. So I, I don't quibble with the idea that inflation is probably peaked, but I think the Fed getting to its target of 2% uh, could be a tall order. Could, you know, could take a long time to get there.
Jason, if we assume that you're right, that inflation will be sort of stickier than anticipated by many, what does that mean to equity allocation within sectors? Which sectors perform in a sticky inflation environment? Yeah, no, I think and it's, I think it's much more address. Um, I think it's much more about the balance sheet, and, and um, so it's, sectors are important. But I'd also say that the, the real trick, I think, is for companies to be self-funding, which is to say that um, they don't necessarily have to rely on the kindness of strangers and the capital markets uh, for an ability to grow, um, and so. Companies that generate a lot of cash flow, it seems to me, are going to be very well poised to weather the storm. It's not to say that they won't be hurt in some way in a recession. Almost everything is cyclical uh, in a recession. But the comp- it's really more, I think, in this environment, outperformance, at least among institutional money managers, is going to be driven much more by what you don't own and uh, as opposed to what you do own. And what, in my opinion, what you don't want to own uh, are companies that are highly leveraged, that uh, are very focused, that need a lot of variable uh, debt, um, and that don't have much in the way of cash flows or earnings uh, to support what was previously really just uh, kind of a free pass uh, to grow. The world, in my opinion, has changed dramatically. Uh, a year ago, uh, companies were strongly incentivized to grow at any cost. There's a lot of private capital there to help them do that. This time around, I, it's not here. The cost of, of debt capital is significantly high, and equity capital is significantly higher. Uh, and so those companies are either going to have to shrink or figure out a way to generate their own own profits and cash flow uh, if they want to survive. Jason, you obviously have a bunch of professional counterparts and speaking partners. What's your assessment of positioning in equities right now? That's, that's another great question. I, and I, what I find when I talk to our clients is that um, there is a, a feeling that people on my side of the business, the sell side, are all bearish. Cool. And as a result, people say, well, how can this be correct? You know, if everyone's, everyone has the same view, if everyone's bearish, how can that be correct? How can that, isn't that already in the price? But when I, find, when I look at uh, positioning on the buy side, I find that it's very rare to see people that are really defensively positioned. Uh, and I still see, if you look at single sector uh, flows into ETFs, um, the energy sector has received, despite the fact that it's down close to 30% this year, uh, the technology sector has received inflows this year. Um, ARC, as an example, Kathy um, Woods ARC Fund, uh, is down about 60% this year. It's received inflows of one and a half billion dollars. And so I would argue that you just don't have seen, it, especially in the tech world, I'm not sure you've seen the capitulation that you would normally see at the end of the bear market. And I think, unfortunately, that may be the next shoe uh, to drop. And I may add that if you are a portfolio manager, you can move the needle as much but if your clients start withdrawing money from your fund due to unemployment, whatever, a recession, then you basically need to sell stocks, no matter your view on the market, right? But Jason, you sent me a very exhaustive list of bull and bear arguments for the equity market right now. And I would actually like to go through the pros and cons of being 
bullish right now. I think that's a really interesting discussion because to me, we are sort of standing at crossroads. It's very difficult to assess, but why don't you give us the sort of top-down picture of the pros and cons of being long the equity market right now? So the, the pros, to start out with that, and again, that's not my view, but the pros would be first is that uh, Federal Reserve has created an awful lot of money. Um, M2 is 40% higher today than it was before the pandemic. So you still have a lot of liquidity in the system. Uh, pros too are that you have you still have negative real rates. Um, so the equity risk premium actually is, is uh, somewhat attractive. Um, I would argue that those are probably the, the most compelling uh, arguments uh, to be long the, the equity market. Um, I also would say China is likely to, to open up a bit more Old trade might do a little bit better. So those, I would, I would argue, those are probably the strongest arguments uh, to be long. Uh, on the other side, I, I think that um, we're looking at uh, the flow as opposed to the stock of, of money. Uh, M2 now is only growing at about one and a half percent year over year. It was growing at 27 percent year over year uh, at the start of 2021. So that's a pretty strong headwind. Uh, Second thing I would say is you, you never want to fight the Fed, and I would argue the Fed is still tightening. Uh, we have not seen the full impact of the Fed's tightening campaign. I would say that's uh, that's the case. Um, third, I, I would say that um, in that environment, uh, you're, you're likely to see a slowdown in the economy, particularly in the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. You've already seen that. You haven't seen something that normally occurs with that, which would be an increase in layoffs. Um, and right now, the U.S. economy is pretty close to full employment, despite the fact that profit growth is slowing. And, and I don't think those things are, um, I don't think they're consistent with one another. So it, it seems to me that consumer spending and consumer confidence is likely to take a hit next year uh, as you see an increase, um, as you see an increase in, uh, in layoffs. But the strongest arguments largely, and this is maybe just when I grew up in the business, which is really the late 80s. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about liquidity and money growth. And um, if I'm using that as kind of my North Star, I would say it's hard to get really bullish on risk assets uh, from here. Uh, generally speaking, it's, been, it's going to be harder uh, just because the central banks are now tight. Obviously, the Fed is trying at least to withdraw liquidity month after month. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, one thing that I wanted to discuss with you is the level of the so called Fed put. Uh, it's obviously a question that we investors ask ourselves on a running basis. Where is the Fed put, do we see a level at which the Fed will turn around? What's your take on the level of the Fed put in the current inflationary environment? This sounds, this may sound a little crazy, uh, but I, given where inflation is right now, I don't think there's a Fed put, at least as far as interest rates are concerned. In 
there is a Fed put, it would be the pace at which you see asset sales from the Fed's balance sheet. So it would be the rate of change and quantitative tightening would be maybe the mechanism in which the Fed would deal with a financial crisis. But if there, there's a financial crisis right now, it seems to me the Fed has a very, very have a very difficult time uh, cutting interest rates, given the fact that inflation is still such an issue and it's such an important political issue. As you may know, we just had uh, our midterm elections in the U.S. Uh, about three weeks ago. Inflation was uh, a top two or top three issue among uh, just people. Uh, and so it's a very politically charged issue. And the Fed, for a long time, was able to focus on one part of its mandate, which was full employment. I would say now uh, it has to focus a lot more on what was originally their only mandate, which is uh, price development. Yeah, I perfectly agree. We have time for a couple of questions from our members, Jason. And we have a question from a member asking you, can you please discuss how deglobalization might affect equity markets globally? Yeah, I think, listen, I, I think um, so do, uh, free trade is always a source of, um, in my opinion, of growth and lower inflation. Um, I think we could debate whether we really had free trade uh, after the Berlin Wall came down or after China joined the WTO, but there's very little question that it, it resulted in lower inflation or disinflation uh, in the developed world. But no, I wouldn't quibble with that. Um, I do think part and parcel of the idea of deglobalization was the idea that non-Western countries might become more Western. And I think over the last couple of years, there are real questions about that, whether it's uh, Russia's incursion into Ukraine or China's dealing uh, with the pandemic. And so there's going to be much more uh, of a bias in the U.S. to do onshoring, which to bring more of our manufacturing back to the United States, or what they call friendshoring, uh, bringing them to other parts of the world that, where we have strong uh, geopolitical allies, um, which is all... It's it's a good development, that's not a bad development, but it's it's simply more expensive. And uh, it strikes me that that would have an impact on profit margins, um, could have a positive impact on employment in the States, uh, but it's also gonna have a deleterious impact on, on profit margins and profit growth, uh, at least without productivity, you know, meaningful productivity gains. And unfortunately, productivity in the US is, is quite poor as it stands right now. Let me follow up with a question. Until recently, I was head of allocation at one of the biggest funds in Europe. I listened into a bunch of earnings calls with American CEOs, and it seemed to me like they talked a lot about bringing supply chains back to the U.S. or nearer to the U.S. borders, but they didn't do a lot about it. Do you concur with that view? I do, and I think part of the problem, even though there there might be a desire to do that, practically speaking, in the United States, it's uh, we don't have the workers, we don't have labor. Um, as you may know, in the states, the labor force participation rate uh, is quite low. So there's, and there's a lot of theories as to why that is, why that's the case. But one of the theories is that there are a lot of people that were close to retirement age uh, before the pandemic, and then once the pandemic hit. They didn't come back to work. You know, they didn't. Once the pandemic was over, um, they, they kind of they rather liked being retired and didn't come back to work. In any event, we we simply have, uh, as I mentioned before, we have um, about 
3 million more job openings than we have people that are actively looking for work. So while it's a good idea, it's a nice idea, I don't think practically speaking, it, um, it can happen anytime soon. Now, perhaps if you get a recession and you get more slack in the labor markets, it's something that they can consider. Uh, but right now, frankly, we have a hard enough time producing what we need to produce with uh, the, uh, the industry mix that we have in the States as it stands today. As I've said recently, I think the best labor market supply reform that you can make right now is to allow the housing market and the equity market to sell off rapidly. That would allow a lot of people to return to the labor force. And a bit of anecdotal evidence from my side, running my own company in Europe right now, it's actually very difficult to get anyone to show up. And I think that's a symptom Amen. of people getting too rich. Uh, Jason, it's been a great pleasure to host you. Any final thoughts for the audience here? No, I would uh, I would just, uh, on your last point, I would very much concur. We're trying to hire people here in New York on our trading desk. And um, we had a very hard time finding two people that would actually want to work five days a week in the office. That would see, that seemed to be a bridge too far. Uh, but um, it, it, see, it, it strikes me that the Fed, to the extent to which um, you're either going to have to create a position in which you get productivity uh, to allow inflation to come down, or you have to destroy demand. If there's one of the two things have to happen if you want inflation to be lower. Mm. And um, right now it strikes me that the um, Fed's decision is to destroy demand. Uh, is, is seems to be the, the, uh, the, the choice that they're making at that moment. So uh, let's sum up for the audience. The Fed has more work, work to do. We should lean bearish on equities overall but there are sectors with strong cash flows that you actually can buy in the current environment. And before we leave you out there, I would like to show the meme of the day because I've been leaning clearly bearish on energy in recent weeks with a lot of success. But after speaking to Jason, I don't really know anymore. It's kind of a 50-50 to me. Jason Trinner, CEO of Strategas, it was a pleasure to host you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jason. And uh, Maggie Lake, my colleague, will be back tomorrow with Tamar uh, Bay visiting the show. Thank you for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing today. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.